We'll be in Genesis chapter 3, focusing on the first six verses today. I studied this passage for an assignment with class this semester, and uh, I picked this specific passage because I've just found it to be so incredibly helpful in my own life whether it be someone that I'm talking to or trying to shepherd my own heart. Um, This passage is just, it keeps coming back to my mind to just remind me how to think about sin, temptation. Obviously, you know, it's the the fall passage where Adam and Eve fall. Um, But I found it so helpful that I wanted to just take some time and study it, and I'm uh, thrilled to be able to bring it to you this morning and allow you to be able to benefit from it as well. And I'm assuming that you already are well familiar with this passage and know the background, so I won't belabor it. But obviously Adam and Eve are our first parents. They're perfect people in a perfect world. Um, Everything that God has created is good. But God has given an instruction to Adam, actually before Eve was created, that Adam is allowed to eat from all of the trees of the garden except for one. And we'll talk more about that tree later. But this passage, it's so familiar that that's a good thing, but it's, it can also be hard to sometimes set our presuppositions aside and uh, not already bring other ideas to the passage that, that maybe we bring from another place in the Bible or whatever else it may be. You may have already decided what you think I'm going to say this morning, and that's it's totally fine. But, but we want to look at it, at it with fresh eyes as much as possible. Another thing about this passage is that it's going to leave us with some unanswered questions. It raises a lot of questions and doesn't answer them all. People want to know things like, did the snake have legs? Or was God's prohibition against this tree some sort of test for Adam and Eve? If they had passed the test, would they have become without the ability to sin as we will be when we're glorified on the new earth. Some people want to know, when did the first sin actually happen? Was it when the fruit went between Adam and Eve's lips, or was it before that? Was it their response to the the serpent that was sinful before they even ate the fruit? Well, the passage doesn't really tell us the answer to questions like these. But what I've tried to do is focus on what the passage does tell us and what I believe is the the main point that we should draw away from it. And although this is a a narrative passage, it's telling a story, um, we do want to look at what the original audience was expected to get out of the story. You hear this principle talked about a lot of times with with, uh, epistles, but you don't always think about it with a narrative. Who was the, the author trying to write to, and why did he include the details he did? Well, as you know, the, the author of this book, Genesis, is Moses. He's writing to the children of Israel, most likely sometime while they're wandering around in the wilderness, before they, obviously before they enter the Promised Land. We know it was, the, we know it was prior to the, entering the Promised Land, because Moses died before they got in. So I believe Moses has probably three 
intentions behind writing this this account. He wants, number one, to give a historical account of what happened so that we can know how we got here, how sin entered the world, why there's death. Secondly, he wants to set the expectation for a, a future Messiah, someone who's coming. He's only hinted at we don't have a lot of details here in Genesis. But he does want to set up that expectation. Someone's coming. <clears throat> and thirdly, this is where we'll spend a lot of our time today, I think Moses wants to instruct his readers how to deal with sin and temptation and how to think about it rightly. If you think about it, Israel had so many incentives to distrust and to disobey God while they were in the wilderness. You see it over and over again throughout the first five books of the Bible. Israel gets a command from the Lord. They don't like it. They don't trust it. And so they either want to mutiny against Moses, or they just outright disobey the command, or they grumble, or maybe all three. Well, Israel, I believe, is supposed to think back to this passage whenever they're tempted to do that. The hiss of the serpent is supposed to be ringing in their ears as they wander in the wilderness, and in our ears as we read the rest of the Bible. So my hope is that after today, all of us will be better equipped to deal with sin and, and temptation in our own lives. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So lest that happen, let's go through this passage, and I want to give you five tragic steps on the road to rebellion. Five tragic steps on the road to rebellion. And the first tragic step on the road to rebellion is questioning God's word. That's in verse 1. Questioning God's word. So here we're introduced to the serpent. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So first of all, who's this serpent? Well, we know from later in the Bible, from Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, that it's Satan. Satan is using this serpent, and he's getting ready to tempt Adam and Eve. My question is, would Moses and his readers have have known this is the devil? Well, I don't know for sure. The... The term nahas for serpent or snake just means serpent, dragon, reptile. So there's not a lot significant about the word. What is significant is he's talking. And you have to ask the question, could all snakes talk? Was it normal back then? Why is Eve not afraid of this? Well, we don't know. That's another unanswered question. But we do know the serpent is talking. Some commentators mention that Snakes were used in pagan worship rituals in the ancient Near East. So maybe there's a connotation there, but but really when you think about it, what kind of animals weren't used for pagan rituals in the ancient Near East? You think about the Egyptians where Israel came from. Cats, crocodiles, the hippopotamus, they were all worshipped. <clears throat> One thing that I did find 
interesting as I was studying for this passage, though, is that the word here, nahas, there's a word pronounced the exact same way, spelled slightly differently. That's a verb in Hebrew, and it means to practice divination. So it could be that there's a, a connotation from the word itself. But either way, I think really the important thing to notice is just that this is a real snake. It's not a symbolic snake. It's a literal snake, and it's representing something evil. And we know the devil is using this snake. And my guess is that the reader is supposed to be wondering who this snake is, and maybe even to be looking for this snake to come popping back up in the future, to come slithering his way back in when you least expect him. Problem is, it's not always in the form of a snake. So Moses wants his readers to be watching out not just for something with scales on it, but he wants them to pay close attention to the words of this serpent, because that's what's really important here. That's what is going to keep haunting humanity at every turn. So notice what the snake says in verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's not wrong to ask an honest question when we don't know something. But that's not what's going on here. This is a veiled accusation against God. I wish we could hear the tone of voice that the serpent uses. I don't know if it was more in a questioning way. Did God actually say that? Or if it was in a a tone of ridicule. Did God actually say you can't eat from any of these trees? But either way, there's extreme exaggeration going on here. He told them they could eat from all the trees except for one. It's almost as if the serpent is saying, what kind of God would make all these wonderful sources of food for his best and his highest creatures and then not allow them to eat it? What is going on here? Well, notice Eve's response in what follows. It almost seems as though she's starting to get taken in by it. And with that, we see the second tragic step on the road to rebellion, and that's twisting God's word. Twisting God's word in verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, Eve's response was mostly right. But she adds something strange. She says, we're not allowed to touch it. And again, the text doesn't tell us exactly why she adds this. It could be that she's portraying God as stingy and unreasonable. But we really don't know for sure. It may not have been sinful. But I do think one thing that's interesting is what she doesn't say. She could have said something like this. No, snake, you've got this all wrong. God is so kind and generous to us. All our wants are always met here. We have perfect fellowship with God and with each other. We've been given the command and the permission to subdue the whole earth for God's glory. What more could we want than that? So what if God has given us this one restriction I don't need to understand why God hasn't given this one tree to us. All I need to know is that God is good, 
and that he's told us that the fruit of this tree is not good for us. And that's enough for me. That's unfortunately not what he says here. But it gets a whole lot worse. With that, we see the third tragic step on the road to rebellion. We've seen the first questioning God's word, second twisting God's word, and now contradicting God's word. Contradicting God's word. In verses 4 and 5, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's no questions here. He is fully contradicting the word of God. There's a question here in the, in the grammar of what he says. Is he saying, you will not surely die. You may not die. I'm not so sure you're going to die. Or is he saying, you will surely not die. There is a difference, and the, the grammar is ambiguous, so we can't know for sure. But either way, I think two things are important to notice. First, he's attacking God's word in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And in verse 5, he's attacking God's character. He gives a reason. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, God told you this because he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to have the kind of knowledge that God has. God doesn't want this for you. God's trying to hold out on you. He's being stingy, and he views you as a threat to his authority. But this is a good thing for you, and you should reach out and take it. He promises two things. First, he promises that they won't die. This is safe for you. It's okay to do it. Second, he promises that they'll have a godlike insight into good and evil. So what is this tree? Is it some sort of magic tree that gives you some sort of divine knowledge? Well, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that name is mentioned back in chapter 2, so we know that the, the serpent didn't come up with it. And it doesn't tell us exactly what's intended here. But my guess is it probably has the idea of deciding between good and evil. It's moral autonomy. Deciding I have the right to say what is good and what's evil. It's a revolt. It's usurping God's position and authority. D.A. Carson calls it the de-godding of God. It's almost like saying, no, God, you had your time in the sun. Now it's my turn. I'll take the wheel. I will control the universe now. I will decide what's good and what's evil. And really all sin is the de-godding of God. D.A. Carson said that we often don't think of ourselves as having this sort of attitude when we sin. We don't necessarily know that we want to be at the center of the universe all the time. But one thing that was humorous and helpful that the D.A. Carson said was, if you ever have one of those knock-down, drag-out kind of arguments, 
one of those things that happens every 10 years. You come away seething and thinking of all the things that you should have said if you'd thought of it fast enough. In your mind, afterwards, who wins the argument? He said, D.A. Carson said, In all these years, I've lost many arguments, but I've never lost a rerun. (laughs) So we want to be at the center of the universe. And this serpent has now taken the nuclear option. He's not being subtle anymore. Now, he's openly contradicting God's word. And now it's decision time for Eve. What is Eve going to do? And now we see the fourth tragic step on the road to rebellion, and that's replacing God's word. Replacing God's word in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, and we'll stop there. When the woman saw. One thing that's hard to see in some of the English versions in a lot of the English versions it says when the woman saw she took in Hebrew it's almost as though the two things are are parallel the woman saw and the woman took that's important I think because the seeing is being emphasized as well not just the taking so what did she see she saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. Basically, she saw what the serpent and her senses told her. God's word should have been Eve's final authority. God said, don't do it, that's enough. Instead, she traded the perfectly reliable word of God for her own fallible human perception. That's what I mean by replacing God's word. This is the antithesis of what it says in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. It's kind of eerie to compare these two passages. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Well, Eve didn't trust in the Lord. She did lean on her own understanding. In all her ways, she did not acknowledge the Lord in this decision. She was wise in her own eyes and thought she was about to become a lot more wise. She didn't fear the Lord. She didn't turn away from evil. And sadly, it wasn't healing to her flesh or refreshment to her bones. It was death. Eve's taking the bait. She's falling for a brilliant and cruel deception. The irony is so thick you can cut it with a knife. She's about to eat from the tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And by doing so, she's proving she has no idea what's good and evil. She has totally flipped the two. And that brings us to the fifth tragic step on the road to rebellion. We've seen questioning God's word, twisting God's word, contradicting God's word, replacing God's word, and now disobeying God's word. In the second half of verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So Adam's been here this whole time. Why wasn't he mentioned before this in the narrative? I think it's because Adam hasn't been doing anything noteworthy to mention. He's had his feet propped up. He's been sitting in a recliner with a bag of popcorn watching. Eve's sin is an act of commission. Adam's sin starts with an act of omission until he joins her. That raises the question, why was Adam blamed for bringing sin into the world? As we saw last week when Pastor Farrell preached from Romans 5.12, why was Adam blamed for bringing sin into the world when Eve ate the fruit first? Is that fair? Well, yes. A partial answer to the question is back in chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 16 and 17. Now keep in mind, this is before Eve was created. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam is charged, number one, to tell Eve about this. And we know he did because Eve knows about the command. So he was faithful to that point. But he was her spiritual leader. He should have stepped in when she's starting to be duped by this serpent. So we need to be aware of sins of omission and not just sins of commission. And if you're in any sort of leadership, this especially applies to you. If you're a husband or a parent with children in the home, or maybe a leader or future leader in the church, you can't ultimately control whether the people under your authority sin or not. And you shouldn't place that burden on your conscience either. But you shouldn't let it happen without doing what you can to convince them not to do it. To convince them that it's sin. And whatever you do, don't use their sin as an excuse for your sin, like Adam did. Now, I feel like I need to give a caveat here for, for our class because... I know you, and most of you are not inclined to neglect. And so I think for a lot of us, the tendency is probably to go too far in the other direction and maybe be over-conscientious. So it's not our responsibility to, to nag the people in our life every time we're afraid they might do something unwise or foolish or sinful. Sometimes they need to learn from their mistakes. But when it is our responsibility when the person is under our authority, when they are deceived and they need to know it, then it is our responsibility to step in and say something. So no wonder God asks Adam in verse 9, Adam, where are you? Adam, where were you? What were you doing when this happened? 1 Timothy 2.14 says, And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Eve was essentially saying in her heart, I know what God said, but that doesn't make sense to me. 
How could that be true? I'm going to assume that there must have been some sort of mistake, and I'm going to do what makes sense to me and what seems best. If I were talking to Eve in that moment, I would say, number one, God doesn't owe you an explanation, and God's not a slave to your intellect. God loves you, and he wants what's best for you. It's much safer for you to trust the Lord. He's much more trustworthy than your finite human judgment. And whenever you can't make sense of God's logic, you need to trust God's character. Adam essentially said in his heart, I know this is a trick, I'm not fooled. But I want this thing so bad, I'm willing to do it anyway. But just in case it doesn't work out, I think I'm going to let her try it first. <clears throat> James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Adam knew that the right thing was to step in and save his wife, but he didn't do it. So the bottom line is, whether you're deceived or whether you're not, no matter what great-sounding reasons you can think of to disobey, we need to believe what God says and obey what he commands. Trust and obey, like the old song says. That's what Moses wants his readers to take away from this passage. But Adam and Eve failed to do that. Interestingly, though, they don't die, at least not physically, right away. It doesn't mean that God lied, but it does mean that there's more to the story than we might have thought if we had just read it without knowing. I would have expected for them to drop dead right on the spot, and for the Bible to stop at the third chapter. End of story. Guilty. We're done. Well, they died spiritually, and they would eventually die physically, but not as quickly as we might have expected. Their eyes were also open, too. It almost seems like the snake told the truth. But when their eyes were opened, they were appalled at what they saw. How did they know good and evil now? They knew evil because when they looked down at themselves, they saw it. They knew evil because they were it. Their physical nakedness was a graphic illustration of their inner spiritual nakedness, openness, and shame before God. So it was all a trick. Even though they weren't dead physically yet, they were a lot more dead than that. They knew good and evil, all right, but not in the way they expected to. They were most certainly not like God. And they knew that now they were going to have to answer to God in their naked and shameful state. Surpass the fig leaves, right? They went with a last-ditch attempt to try to cover up and hide their shame and guilt. And you can guess how well that works. What a sad mess the creation is in here in the third chapter of Genesis. But this is only part of what Moses wants to do with this passage, I believe. If this were all, it would be pretty depressing. But I, I believe God intends for this passage 
Yes, to motivate us to resist the seduction of sin, but much more than that. It would take another sermon to fully capture what happens later in the chapter, but I want to give you just a, a quick flyover, quick preview of some of it. God comes, He finds Adam and Eve, He exposes their sin for what it is, and He pronounces temporal consequences for it. But then God gives an unexpected ray of hope when he's pronouncing the curse on the serpent in verse 15. He mentions this offspring of the woman, seed of the woman. We know from the rest of the Bible that the ultimate seed of the woman is Jesus who crushed the serpent's head by taking the penalty for our sin and destroying sin's power over us. One day, He's coming back, and he's going to give the serpent his final death blow when he makes all things right at the end of the age. But for now, the serpent can still tempt us. Not only that, but the world and our own flesh can tempt us, devil or no devil. So our duty is still to resist sin. But if you're in Christ, you can know that sin and Satan will never destroy you. If God is for you, who can stand against you? So, 1 John 2.1, I think, sums up the intent of this passage well. 1 John 2.1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So fight sin, but don't trust in your own fighting or your own righteousness for your salvation and your right standing before God. That would do about as much good as fig leaves. Just like God made better clothes for Adam and Eve later in the chapter, He clothes us in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that is much, much better. So only when we're fully trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation and for our obedience can we truly live the obedient lives that God wants us to live. So we've come full circle. Trust and obey. The order is important. We have to trust before we can obey. We've got to trust in God first for our salvation coming to him in faith. We have to obey the command to have faith. And then we have to trust him to enable our obedience in the future. Only then can we live the way we're supposed to. So a couple of implications that I want to draw out of this passage. One is, are there any ways... Any habits in your life where you're trying to explain away or ignore some of God's commands or God's statements that you find uncomfortable or inconvenient? You'd much rather forget about those parts of the Bible because they're hard. We need to listen to what the Lord says, not pick and choose. Another implication... Are you someone 
Who likes to try to hide your sin, cover it up, or self-atone? Are you a fig leaf tailor? Do you like to try to cover yourself up when you sin? Do you try to hide or minimize it? Do you try to rationalize it away? It wasn't really a sin. Do you wait to pray and confess it to the Lord for a little while to give him some time to cool off and not be so mad at you? That's fig leaves. That's not how we should treat our sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David gives an example of this, of how this works in, in his own life in Psalm 32. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, talking about being silent about his sin, not confessing it to the Lord, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So we should obey the Lord. We should fight sin and temptation wherever it crops up. We should view that as the snake slithering up, and we should kill it. But when we fail... We need to trust the Lord. We need to confess it to Him quickly. Trust in His forgiveness. And trust in Him to enable our future obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that it's clear. Thank You that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it's always applicable, it's always helpful. Thank You for the seed of the woman. Thank you that you took the penalty for our sin that we could never have dealt with on our own. Thank you that forgiveness is full and free in Christ. Thank you that you've enabled us now, after salvation, to be able to fight sin, to obey you, to have fellowship with you. I pray that you would help us to fight sin now, not to give us a right standing with you, but to honor you, to serve you, because we're thankful to you, to help other people. I pray that you would use us in this sinful, fallen world for your glory. I pray that you would help us to believe your word, to trust your promises, to obey your commands, to believe everything you say, whether it makes sense to us or not. And I pray that you would use us this week Convict our hearts, encourage our hearts, and bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.